0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with journalist, author, and climate activist Bill McKibben. Bill joined me via Skype from America to talk about his new book, Falter Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 R FM in Melbourne. I'm Amy Mullins, and I'm pleased to have with me now, joining me from Vermont. Bill McKibben, who is the author of Falter, has the human game begun to play itself out? Bill McKibben is an American journalist and activist. He's written 15 books, including the bestseller, The End of Nature, of course, which um, is very relevant to the text that we'll be discussing now. And um, this book in particular is a powerful call to arms from an eminent environmentalist. So I think, particularly in Australia, we would need Need a call to arms now more than ever and of course we're probably not alone so I welcome now Bill McKibben and thank you so much for joining me Bill.
1: Well what a pleasure to be with you Amy.
0: It's great to uh, finally get to pick your brain um, because I reading through this book, it's so compelling. And um, I was struck by just how engaged you are on the research and the developing catastrophe that is climate change, not just from an American perspective, but a global perspective. So I think this book is particularly valuable from that um, big picture look that you've really set out to achieve. So first up, I wanted to talk a little bit about the title of the book, and particularly the subtitle, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? First of all, in terms of the human game, what would you characterize as the game that we're currently playing and have been playing?
1: (laughs) Well, it's a broad title, but the, the human game, I guess, is everything. It's, you know, Uh, music and art and commerce and sex and dinner and love and uh, all the things that that mark our species as distinctive and all the things that are under threat from the ecological recklessness of the moment and perhaps from some of the technological hubris of the moment too. Uh, You know, I, I wrote, as you said, the first book for a general audience about climate change. Uh, way back in 1989. And so in one sense, this book follows up uh, by saying, looking at where we are now, since we ignored the warnings we got three decades ago. And it also tries to look at some of the threats, uh, artificial intelligence, human genetic engineering, that are kind of where climate change was 30 years ago, a, a nascent and understandable threat. But Still, perhaps uh, we haven't taken the faithful steps and maybe we could have this discussion in advance instead of after the fact.
0: It certainly does seem to be quite common that we'll often downplay the seriousness of an issue because it hasn't yet become apparent what the effects of certain things are. And we're particularly optimistic, if not sometimes in denial, about a lot of the impacts that we can even prove are currently happening due to climate change. In terms of, in the first um, chapter at least, you're talking about what the human game is and what humans have achieved and the aspects of life that make human life quite unique. And um, I was particularly interested in... The fact that you talk about in the year 1500, humans managed to produce goods and services worth 250 billion in today's dollars. 500 years later, that number is 60 trillion, which, as you say, is a 240 fold increase. So that highlights how we've, since the Industrial Revolution, really ramped things up in terms of the creation of goods and, as you say, services. And you highlight some of the important authors who have been talking about the need to be sustainable in the sense of producing goods and in the sense of managing the world's resources. Where do you think we're at in terms of the understanding that perhaps we can't grow in an upward trajectory? Because that is clearly, as you said, the neoliberal focus of the past and the current, which is to just assume that we can continue to grow and that economies will not recede and um, the populations will grow as well.
1: Yeah. So the first thing to be said is we've been on a hell of a roll and, uh, you know, our species has gotten much bigger and much richer some point in the most developed societies over the last 50 years, it looks like we've probably gotten to the point of being overdeveloped. That is, the level of consumption we're at is laying waste uh, the natural world, and it's no longer making us happier. Uh, The percentage of Americans, for instance, who describe themselves as very happy peaked sometime in the 1950s and has been going downhill since, even as we've gotten staggeringly more wealthy. So we're at a moment when reexamination is possible and, of course, necessary. If we don't manage to rein ourselves in, then, then the future is as bleak as every scientist has testified. Now, the good news is that technological innovation continues, and it provides tools that we need to allow the poorest parts of the world to keep on developing, but without breaking the back of the planet. Much of the last chapter of the book is devoted to telling the stories of uh, the trips I took for the New Yorker magazine to Ghana and the Ivory Coast and Tanzania, watching as they, in essence, leapfrogged the developed world. And installed their first power with solar panels and and wind turbines. And the fact that modernity can come now through environmentally more or less benign technologies is a a really happy thing. It means we don't have to choose between kind of destitution on the one hand or environmental destruction on the other.
0: You highlight some really interesting um, micro projects that really come down to individual communities that are actually taking steps to solve their own problems and contribute to the solution to climate change. I also wonder whether it might in some ways, not always, but in some ways contribute to complacency because a lot of the perhaps richer people who have vested interests in the system as it stands, particularly in fossil fuels. They certainly, in various ways, have suggested that one can adapt and that technology is going to continue to increase and, of course, we'll somehow be able to adapt our way out of the situation we find ourselves in. Now, reading the book that you've written, Falter, I would say that that's clearly not possible, but... I'm interested in your thoughts on the flip side of technology, it having positives, but also perhaps contributing in some ways to ways of avoiding action.
1: Look, the idea that there's some, in the future, some technological fantasy solution that's going to somehow magically suck all the carbon out of the air or something is, I mean, that's magical thinking. We got the gift that we needed. The engineers have done their job and brought down the price of a solar panel, the price of a wind turbine, the price of a battery to store that energy. I mean, you guys have gotten to look fairly close up there in South Australia, for instance, with the huge battery that that Mr. Musk installed. This technology is there. If we want to use it, we can now deploy it at scale. And the only thing really that's standing in the way is the immense political power of the fossil fuel industry. They're traditionally the richest industry in the world. And as I point out at some length in the book, they've used that wealth and power to make sure that we don't make the kind of changes that scientists say we must. Australia obviously is a is a good case in point, even as it's diligently installing renewable energy on its own rooftops and things. It's politicians are continuing to push for the export of vast quantities of carbon out to the rest of the world, and, and that idea that we can have our cake and eat it too uh, is a nice one. It just doesn't comport with physics and chemistry.
0: Indeed, I was pretty shocked to read Chapter 6, which you go through in quite a lot of detail, various companies and executives who've had a strong stake, commercial stake in utilising natural resources for their own profit. And obviously people needed to use those resources to fuel their cars and power their homes in terms of the understanding that clearly corporations have had at a very early point, I mean, there were executives in the oil and gas and mining industries who knew about the impacts of their mining and were, as you say, taking commercial decisions to factor in sea level rises. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty shocking. And then they would, you know, as you say, publicly question the um, certainty of the facts and really put a query over the heads of scientists who were saying, in fact, fact this is an issue and it's not going to go away. And I'm just really interested in the fact that you say there was a really important turning point that perhaps may have made it a lot easier to actually do something and limit global warming and the rise in temperature overall. And so could you share with us the pivotal moments that you've identified? Because I think they're pretty important and highlight the current power dynamics.
1: Absolutely. The alternative history sort of here is really kind of interesting and tragic. And if you want a moment, like, have you guys been watching The Man in the High Castle, say, do you do that kind of alternate history, TV shows and movies and things? Have they reached uh, Australia yet?
0: I think a little uh, bit, yeah.
1: I mean, that's a huge hit in this country about what happened if the Nazis had won the Second World War. Uh, The Mm. alternative history moment in the climate story comes in the 1980s. We know now from great investigative reporting from the Los Angeles Times, from Columbia Journalism School, from elsewhere over the last three or four years, we know now that the fossil fuel industry knew everything there was to know about climate change in the 1980s. And of course, it stands to reason that they would. Take Exxon, for instance. It was the biggest company, bar none, in the world. It had endless staff of scientists, good ones, and their product was carbon. So of course they were going to find out what was going on. And they did find out. By 1982 or 1983, their scientists were explaining to their executives how much it was going to warm and how fast. And they were spot on. I mean, the curve has gone exactly where they said it was going to go. Their executives believed those scientists. Exxon started building every drilling rig that it built to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was coming. They began plotting out a strategy for how to drill in the Arctic once it melted, as they now knew it would. What they didn't do was tell any of the rest of us, just the opposite. They set to work on this multi-billion dollar a year project with the whole fossil fuel industry that involved telling lies, uh, building a kind of architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that's kept us locked in a totally phony debate about whether or not climate change was, quote, real, unquote, for 30 years. Uh, It was a debate that both sides knew the answer to at the beginning. It's just one of the sides was willing to lie. And it became the most consequential lie in human history because it cost us the 30 years that we needed to get this crisis under some kind of control. Uh, You know, I mean, look at what happened in the United States. We went in 1988 from uh, a Republican president, George H.W. Bush, declaring that he was going to, quote, fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect to 2019, when the current Republican occupant of the White House believes that Climate change was a hoax manufactured by the Chinese, which is a point so delusional that, you know, even Clive Palmer might not you <laughs> know, decide to make it. Uh, but that's what happens when you have, you know, decade upon decade of highly paid lies being told all the time. And so, uh, look, in 1989 or 88, when James Hansen, the NASA scientist, testified before Congress that climate change was real, thus setting off the, the kind of public era of the global warming age, if that night the CEO of Exxon had just gone on the TV news and said, you know what, our, our, our scientists are, are finding pretty much the same thing, it's not like anyone would have accused Exxon of being climate alarmists. We would simply all have gotten to work on this problem that we didn't is going to be recorded in geological history.
0: Yes, exactly. It is interesting that you note that Hansen's NASA climate models were used by the oil companies to figure out how low their drilling costs in the Arctic (laughs) would eventually fall. So yeah, there there really isn't an excuse, (laughs) as you can say, because they were using that data themselves. Interestingly, I don't know if you've seen Vice, the movie that came out recently, But um, it reminded me of this section in your book where you describe the fact that nine days after George W. Bush was inaugurated, Lee Raymond, who was Exxon's president and CEO, came to visit his old friend, Vice President Dick Cheney, who of course himself was part of the oil industry. And he was really important or pivotal in changing the US government's approach to global warming and greenhouse gases. And um, it was really Interesting to me that initially you highlight that Bush was tending towards the other side, which was to perhaps classify carbon dioxide as a pollutant.
1: That's right. That's what he'd run on. But remember who his vice president was and the man that most historians say was kind of the power behind the throne, Dick Cheney. He'd come to the White House directly from running Halliburton, the biggest oil services kind of drilling firm in the world. Uh, And he immediately uh, put the kibosh on any talk of treating carbon dioxide as a pollutant. He had people like the CEO of Exxon round for tea right away, and they quickly uh, set us on our present course. And they continue to. I mean, in the States, there's a big story in the Times. This week, that the Trump administration is now busily firing all the climate scientists they still can find on the federal payroll just to make sure that nobody brings up the inconvenient facts.
0: Mm. This book, in particular, the section on leverage, highlighted to me the importance or power of ideas and writing, in particular, and also money. But one of the people that I was interested in is you mentioned that the most important political philosopher of our time is novelist Ayn Rand. And you're saying that it's arguable, (laughs) but it's fairly certain. (laughs) And I wasn't particularly familiar with Rand's work myself. I'm sure she is familiar to many others though. And to me... I was also interested in her contribution to influencing some of those important people that you've already discussed and that you discuss in the book, the business people, the executives and the politicians who were shaping the ideology of the time and also shaping the role of government and its importance in people's lives and the interesting focus on hyper-individualists and the individual versus community that was really set up there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, let's begin by saying... Ayn Rand was not important because she had fascinating new ideas. I mean, she might as well have been writing with a crayon. Um, You know, her classic novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, are turgid celebrations of what we would now call the 1%. Uh, She was the most dogged evangelist for the idea that greed is good. Uh, that you should never behave in an altruistic fashion, that government was a plot to take money away from the rich who deserved it, on and on and on and on. So the patron saint of Ronald Reagan, of Maggie Thatcher, of Alan Greenspan, you know, uh, you can name some people in the Australian political orbit who would fall into this same category. It's an unpleasant view of the world and One result of it, it turns out, is that the temperature of the planet goes way, way up. So it's not a successful long-term idea, but it's incredibly successful in the short term in driving the kind of rampant inequality we now see around the world. I mean, we live on a planet where eight human beings have more wealth combined than the bottom three and a half billion human beings have combined. Uh, That's the kind of world that Ayn Rand and people like her conjured up, and it's one of the reasons that we have such a difficult time dealing with the crises that now beset us.
0: Yes, and you do say in relation to that that there's too much leverage in the system and that in the past when the ideological pendulum swung hard in one direction, there was time and space for it to swing back, which that certainly does make sense to me. I'm wondering how would one in the circumstances we find ourselves in now be able to swing it back faster because clearly we don't have the time and space required
1: Well, the only way to swing it back fast is to build movements, and that's what I've spent much of the last couple of decades of my life doing, and it's what the last part of this book is about. You know, against great wealth and power, the only alternative is to try and build people's movements of a size and scale enough to take on that wealth and power. There are some signs that that's starting to happen over the last decade. We've built a strong beginning of a climate movement, 350.org, which I helped found. It was the first big global grassroots group. It's been wonderful to watch it succeed in Australia. In fact, just this week, a new CEO, Lucy Mann, has taken over for the wonderful Blair Police. Uh, uh, our other colleagues, like Glenn Klotovsky just keep pushing hard and hard down under for this kind of work, but the same all over the world. We organize in every country on the planet except North Korea, and we've managed to drive this big fossil fuel divestment campaign It's now the biggest anti-corporate campaign in history about eight trillion dollars worth of endowments and portfolios that have sold off their fossil fuel stock we've helped catalyze a lot of the opposition to pipelines and things like that watched with great admiration the work of aboriginal people and climate scientists and others trying to stop say the adani mine in australia there's some signs that this kind of work is increasing, cresting, reaching a kind of critical mass. The school strikes that Greta Thunberg has helped produce are a remarkable example of that. Um, there are places where it seems to be working. The elections over the weekend in Europe produced. Uh, remarkable groundswell for the green parties there. Young people voted for green parties above all others because of their focus on climate change. And there are other places where it's working too slowly. Uh, you know, frankly, those of us watching from the rest of the world were really saddened to see Australia just decide to stick with the no climate policy. It's the following for a while. Uh, so the fight continues. We announced last week that there'd be uh, all ages global climate strike. The students that Greta Thunberg had assembled were asking adults to back them up. And we've put together a, a, a big group of people from around the world to say, yes, let's make that happen. Uh, it includes, it, it'll happen on September 20th. And the people who are backing it are, you know, range from great diplomats like Christiana Figueres, who really organized the Paris Climate Accords, Uh, to great scientists like Tim Flannery, to indigenous leaders from around the world, including Australians like uh, Dr. Ann Polina, uh, to, well, even to comedians like uh, old acquaintance there, Tom Ballard. So the fight is on. That's what movements do. I have no doubt that this movement will eventually win. What I do doubt is whether it will win in time. We don't know, but it's going to be a very close call because climate change is the first timed test that human beings have ever undertaken. Uh, if we don't win soon, then we don't win. And and I, I don't know. I mean, that's why it was tragic to watch what for me to watch what happened in the Australian elections. It means that the Australian government will basically be on the sidelines during what are going to be probably the most crucial years of the climate fight.
0: Yes, I mean, I can only speak for some of the people I know, but I believe that they're also very disappointed in that outcome. Um, I think that a lot of the discussions I've had with people is that we really didn't have time to waste and we can't actually afford to wait the three years that it's going to take now to potentially elect a new government who might do something better on climate change because obviously climate change I think in Australia as you would know having visited and having so many connections here is that it really has um, been that issue that's brought down multiple leaders and parties and it's still surprising to me to be honest that that could be so contentious and that that could be something that um, is so contested in Australian society but I mean with your book, it certainly does highlight to me that um, the power of vested interests and the power of money uh, certainly is at the moment winning out over people power. But I'm certainly heartened to hear that you've said the movement is building and, and I certainly feel like it has been building here. Uh, I hope
1: so. It, it kind of breaks one's heart in Australia because, A, because there's you know so many Great scientists and uh, engineers and entrepreneurs and civic leaders, mayors who are doing a terrific job and things, but also because uh, you know Australians have had a front row seat to some of the worst climate destruction we've yet seen on the planet. Whether it's the you know wildfires in the suburbs of Melbourne, or whether it's the drying up of the Murray Darling River system, or whether you know most painfully perhaps it's the wholesale decimation of the Great Barrier Reef, which is, you know, the largest living structure on planet Earth, but but roughly half as living as it was three or four years ago. So to be able to watch that up close and still not be able to kind of reckon with it politically is sad. But I have no doubt that all sorts of good Australians will be fighting. And as I said, there'll be prominent in this global climate strike coming through September 20th. Sharon Burrow, the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, was one of the important people who signed on to this call Uh, uh, and I I, I think we will be playing a big role in making sure that people of every kind are represented in this fight.
0: Yes, indeed. It reminds me when you were just talking about the election that one of the things that uh, comes up is the fact that um, it's quite a small-minded, to be honest, response that politicians had and also journalists in our election campaign, but it was that what is climate action going to cost? Please give us a, a fully costed policy, this is to the opposition at the time, of your climate change action plan because many people continually frame the debate around climate change as being pure about cost And the opposition took a long time to say, what are the costs of inaction? But even more than that, as you've highlighted, there's also benefits economically, socially, but obviously environmentally. There are many benefits to investing in things like renewable energy that actually create jobs and contribute to the well-being of people who are perhaps the worst off in society. And given that you visited Queensland and the Great Barrier Reef, you might have a, a greater understanding of Queensland and I guess the tension that exists over there around the Adani mine which you mentioned and the Great Barrier Reef and the fact that they're so reliant on tourist money but also there are small struggling towns in Queensland who look at any new venture and um, and think that this is good because we just desperately need employment. How do you reconcile those two issues and tensions
1: Well, I mean, this is uh, the same the world round. The truth is, I mean, we look at a country like the United States where Donald Trump talks constantly about coal miners. There really aren't very many coal miners left, largely because mining has been so remarkably automated. So clearly, the answer is not to continue uh, forever mining coal simply because it's a good job for uh, some number of people. It's to figure out, something else for people to do and to make sure that they have the training and the resources necessary to make that transition to a different good job australia like the united states is plenty rich enough to do that the reason that we don't do it i think at least the case in the united states is that it's been much more convenient for politicians attached to fossil fuel interests to kind of hold those communities hostage And it's incredibly painful to watch because the long-term outlook is very clear. The world is going to use less and less coal, and it's going to use more and more sun and wind because the price of a solar panel has come down 90% in the last decade, and the price of a battery is on the same curve. So just do the math, you know. The worst thing that one can possibly do is try and sort of encourage endless false hope that some uh, golden past is returning. Uh, and And when politicians start talking about the cost of it and demanding that you cost everything out, uh, really the the only rational response is to say, tell me about the cost of doing nothing. Have you managed to add up what the cost of dealing with climate change is? Because if you do, you find out that it takes more money than there is on the planet. You cannot move the world's great cities if you let the temperature, if you let the ocean rise a few meters. You can't grow enough food for our population if you let drought and flood continue to alternate in ever greater, larger, more extreme cycles. That's what we're doing. And... It just even on purely economic terms, not to mention human terms, not to mention moral terms, not to mention talking about future generations, just in pure economic terms. It's the dumbest thing we've ever done, unless you own a coal mine. And then if you own a coal mine, it's worth spending $50 million on an election to make sure that you can keep the status quo going for another four or five years.
0: Yeah, Absolutely the The figures that you've put forward, you say climate change is currently costing the u s economy about two hundred and forty billion dollars a year and the world one point two trillion annually, uh, wiping one point six percent each year from the planet's GDP now. I certainly am not as fixated on GDP, but there are many others who are. And you would think that perhaps the monetary argument would get the most um, hard-minded people to shift in terms of governments and the cost to the economy.
1: Yeah, the problem is that people who are that hard-minded tend to think in the very, very short term. Mm. And so each quarter they think, well, if we can keep making a little more money from coal now – that's money for me and I don't have to worry about what happens a decade or two down the road. Uh, Lord Stern, the British economist, published the first real economy-wide assessment about a decade ago of the cost of climate change. He said the cost would be greater than World War I, World War II, and the Great Depression combined. Two or three years ago, he went back and revisited that paper and said, you know what, I was in error I grossly understated how much it was going to cost. Each passing month, the scientists give us new data about how much quicker the seas are rising, uh, how much quicker the permafrost is melting, uh, how much quicker we're seeing uh, the spread of forest fire. Uh, Look, the phrase, if there was one phrase for the 21st century, it would be faster than expected because Mm. that's what Scientists are saying over and over again, and every time they do that, you should hear a cash register ringing because the price of climate change just went up.
0: That's so true. I've got to say, reading the first part of the book can get quite harrowing at times, and I think it's important to actually face up to what humans have done, because if you're not really facing the cold, hard facts of human activity, you can't really Make a change and reconcile past actions with future behaviour. That's why I find history so important to current day. So I certainly I value the fact that you've put our current activities and the current impacts into geological time and putting it into millions and millions of years on the time scale to make us understand that even when the lights went out on the planet briefly, um, in terms of you know millions of years that we are still exceeding some of the major catastrophes that happened at that time that wiped out most of um, of activity and animals on the planet in terms of some of the most surprising changes environmental degradations and effects some of the the areas that do get pushed to the side are things like air pollution which you've really identified as one of the most important issues that we're currently facing particularly in India and also China and we've seen this massive pushback from Individuals in China, and that has signalled the power of a movement and the power of a, a group because that's really has pushed the Chinese government to start taking action on issues of the environment and air pollution but the human costs like the deaths that are caused by air pollution are perhaps not really fully understood or taken into account given that we'll often perhaps look at other things or the effects of air pollution and say well really it was cancer that killed them or lung disease that killed them rather than looking at the cause. Absolutely Um,
1: you know those of your listeners who've traveled some to Asia in recent years have some visceral sense of this. Uh, If you go to Delhi now one of my favorite cities. Uh, you can't really even go outdoors. I mean, it's just become impossible. The worst air in the world uh, all across Asia. And that's one of the reasons why the Chinese are now shunning coal as fast as they can. And India's begun to follow. Uh, they're building renewable energy quickly because, in part, their cities have become just unlivable. Fossil fuel was a very useful substance in a lot of ways it powered a lot of the prosperity that we've come to take for granted but it's now a poisoned gift we don't need it anymore we can move into renewable energy at enormous speed and every year that we don't we kill more people run up more cost and all of it just to enrich the tiny tiny coterie of oil and coal and gas barons. Uh, uh, who keep us on this path?
0: Indeed, and I think perhaps given the the scale of the impacts that we're seeing, it's often quite difficult for humans to. ...put it into perspective or understand the magnitude of the issue that we're dealing with. And I know a lot of people would scroll through their Twitter feed perhaps... uh, ...or their Facebook feeds and see all the news that comes out daily about climate change... ...and feel quite overwhelmed and see the, the growing evidence and headlines... ...but then not perhaps really understand the real world effects in the next 30 years for example... In your book, actually, you do bring it home. I think you make it easier to identify the magnitude of of certain things. I wanted to highlight one because it seemed to be one of the most impactful for me. You were talking about fossil fuels and the rising concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and you said that it's Increased from 275 parts per million to 400 parts per million over a 200-year time frame, and we're then uh, on our trajectory. If we continue the way we are, we would increase it up to 700 parts per million or more. And then you highlight the fact that, well, how do we even really know what parts per million is? And um, this is really what got me. Is you say that the extra heat that we trap near the planet because of the carbon dioxide we've spewed is equivalent to the heat from 400,000 Hiroshima-sized bombs every day or four each second. Have you had any kind of reactions or have people who've been reading your book said anything about the first chapter and whether it has, I guess, opened their minds more to the absolutely irreparable damage and scale that this climate emergency is?
1: Yes, I I think people are finally starting to clue into the fact of the scale of this crisis. Even those who understood that global warming was a problem didn't understand, I think, quite how quick and how large the crisis was. And it really does help to put it in historical perspective. You know, there have been five previous mass extinction events over the last 600 million years or so on this planet. Uh, So one every 70, 80 million years, 100 million years. And in each case, it's been because uh, uh, carbon dioxide levels have been dramatically perturbed in the atmosphere. Usually what happens is enormous volcanic activity over thousands of years that sets alight vast quantities of coal or gas or oil. and. And allows the CO2 in the atmosphere to accumulate, and raises the temperature, and wipes out large numbers of creatures. In this case, uh, it hasn't been volcanism, it, but it turns out that you know V8 engines work just as well as volcanoes. Uh, and in the course of a couple of hundred years, not 10,000 years, you can dig up enough dead biology and set it on fire to have the same effect as those giant continent-sized volcanic seeps. So the scale of what we're doing is enormous. And I guess the good news is that unlike those previous episodes, here we are on the planet able to recognize it. The scientists have given us a warning. And since we're causing it, we can do something about it. If we stop, if we stop burning coal and gas and oil, which again, we're now able to do because the engineers have done such a good job with solar panels and wind turbines, if we stop, then we will not stop global warming, too late for that now, but we will stop it short of where, stop it short of the worst, perhaps stop it short of the point or it takes down civilizations. It's an open question whether we've waited too long to do that. The best science seems to indicate that we have a narrow window, albeit a window that's closing, in which to take decisive action quickly, and that if we do, we will be spared the worst. But that requires us moving far, far, far faster than we're moving at present.
0: Indeed. And uh, certainly, I'm really keen to understand before we wrap up your firsthand experience with traveling to different parts of the world and visiting different countries and you do give some really descriptive examples of when you've traveled overseas and, and seen firsthand some of the impacts and one of those was when you traveled to Queensland and saw the Great Barrier Reef and it was only really quite recently that you witnessed it. In your view when you saw what has already happened to the reef in terms of coral bleaching and I guess it also then impacts upon the growth of organisms around the coral as well and fish. What struck you the most when you saw it at a human level?
1: So when you travel around the world, and I've done that because we've been trying to build this movement around the world. So Mm. I have spewed my share of CO2 into the atmosphere in the course of doing it. But in the course of that, yeah, I've gotten to see a lot of destruction. Now, look, uh, the iron law of climate change is the less you did to cause it, the worse the damage that's wrecking your life. And so one feels bad for the people in the tourist industry in Queensland, but Australia is rich enough that they'll survive. That's not true of farmers in Bangladesh or uh, farmer peasant farmers in the rapidly desertifying parts of Africa whatever. But, man, to get on the Great Barrier Reef, we went out in a boat with the same people who'd taken David Attenborough out three years earlier when he was filming Blue Planet. And they took him. You'll probably recall the most epic scene in that whole 10-part or whatever it was, documentary series, was the coral spawning at that one spot along the outer reef there. And it was, you know, just a ballet of fertility uh incredible to watch well we went to exactly the same spot the same gps coordinates the same reef with the same people because they wanted to show us what it looked like three years later now what it looks like three years later is a parking garage i mean all the coral is dead and gray you can still see its forms the great fans and staghorns and things but they're all dead because it got too hot you know um And just to watch that and to watch the feeble response of governments to that is to wonder whether or not the big brain was all that successful in adaptation. The good news is that there are a lot of people not only with big brains but with big hearts who are fighting back as hard as they can. And and I guess that's a good place to end just to say um, we need everybody. Joining in that fight, everybody of good heart and good conscience, Uh, the next big opportunity will be these global climate strikes for all ages on September 20th. And you can find out about them at globalclimatestrike.net. But there'll be other opportunities, too, because this fight is the biggest fight that humans have ever wandered into.
0: Indeed. And um, that is a a good point to conclude our discussion. I think the final part of your book, when you're talking about what is inherent in the human spirit and nature is the fact that we are communal beings and we are all about community, really, we're social beings. And I was interested um, that you said the mere act of joining in with others halves one's risk of dying in the next year. (laughs) Yep.
1: If you want to be Healthy and happy, then join together with others in some cause larger than yourself. And every bit of research we have shows us that this is what we were built for, not trying to, you know, uh, uh, pile up yet more cash in a bank account someplace.
0: Indeed. Thank you, Bill, for taking the time to share with us some of the fascinating insights you've gleaned and obviously the unique perspective you have given that you've been working on this for such a long period of time and, you know, wrote The End of Nature um, about 30 years ago in your late 20s, I believe. So, you know, this has been a lifelong commitment for you and um, I really do commend you and thank you for everything that you've done and and I think this book is so fantastic.
1: Thank you, Amy, very much. Good on you for taking all these questions seriously. And it's just what we need to just keep talking about them and acting on them. So God bless. Take care.
0: Thank you very much, Bill. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m.